welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning. Welcome along. Thrilled that you're with us this morning. If you uh, have been away for the last couple of weeks or you're a visitor with us this morning, you are stepping into a series that we have just begun on uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, Last time, uh, just by the way, the first message was kind of an introduction to the, an overview of Isaiah. Last week we started in really on the first chapter. Um, Just in case you're thinking 66 chapters, this is going to be a long, long series I just want you to know we're not going to go chapter by chapter or verse by verse. We will actually be taking large chunks of the book and and dealing with them that way and and in some instances possibly missing portions out altogether. But I noted last week that chapter 1 through 5 really form a kind of a prologue, an introduction to the rest of the book. Most of the prophets, be it it, uh, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, begin with their call and the experience that they had with God that led them into this particular prophetic ministry. We don't get that until we get to chapter 5 in Isaiah, and uh, sorry, chapter 6 in Isaiah. So the first five chapters are really an introduction and serve to introduce to us Isaiah's main themes, the themes that he will explore and unpack again and again throughout the book. Largely, they have to do with judgment and hope. So chapter five, uh, chapter 1 through 5, we see both judgment and hope. More judgment than hope, it has to be, says, uh, had to be said, but, but both are present. Now, I mentioned last week that in these early chapters, Isaiah presents us with a very troubling contrast. Jerusalem as it is, and Jerusalem as it is called to be, the actual contrasted with the ideal. Now, remember last week I suggested to you that Jerusalem is a metaphor that the Scripture uses and Isaiah uses to describe a community of faith. If you just think about Isaiah in terms of bricks and mortar and a historical city a long time ago in a place far, far away, then Isaiah will largely mean nothing to you. But if you look at that metaphor and see as Isaiah speaks about Jerusalem, see him speaking to the community of faith and put on your bifocals. Remember we talked in that original message about you have to really read Isaiah with bifocals. You look down at what presently is and you look up at what he is echoing, what he is talking about in terms of what might come. Some have suggested that when we come to Isaiah, we bring both a microscope and a telescope. It's another way of saying the same thing. The microscope talks to the immediate situations that Isaiah is addressing, but the telescope allows you to look up and see the echoes, the the pictures that Isaiah is painting, not just of his time, but of other times and ultimately the time of the end. So when we talk about Jerusalem as it is and Jerusalem as it's intended to be, as you look up through your bifocals, you see the community of faith as it presently is, the actual, and the community of faith as it's intended to be, the ideal. And the gap between the actual and the ideal in this instance is massive. It's a seemingly unbridgeable gap. And the question that 
Isaiah's analysis poses is how can this Jerusalem ever become that Jerusalem? So we looked at chapter 1 last week and we saw God the righteous judge in a court scene bringing forth the witnesses and making a case not against some unknown stranger but against his own people, his own children. He says, listen, oxen know their owners. My people don't know who I am. This is, this is a tragedy. He brings in heaven and earth. Heaven and earth, you come as witnesses. You were there when I made covenant with these people. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 32. He called heaven and earth to be witnesses of the covenant that he was entering into with this community of faith. Now he calls those same two witnesses back to the stand and says, you were there, now look at this. And he lays out the charges against this community of faith. He says, this Jerusalem, as it is community, has iniquity in the nation, insincerity in the temple, and injustice in the city. And as a result of that, this community is staring down the barrel of impending judgment sent from the hand of God. Fascinating, but you go from that picture into chapter 2, and the tone suddenly and unexpectedly changes from judgment to hope. And I mentioned this in the introduction, that those quick changes in Isaiah are characteristic of him. And to be truthful, they are somewhat disconcerting and abrupt. He's talking about judgment and then suddenly he pops in a note of hope. Or he's talking about hope and suddenly he pops in a note of judgment. And he does it here. So in chapter 1, there's this court case and the people are staring down the barrel of impending judgment. You go straight into chapter 2 and it starts off, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days, that always makes you want to look up through the bifocals when you see that phrase, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many people, peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the Jerusalem of promise. First chapter is as it is, actually, this is the intended Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem of promise. Note that it starts on that day, or the message says, in the latter days. As a reminder, put on your bifocals. Now, some of you would have been raised in circles uh, where the kind of hermeneutic, the, the way of looking at scriptures is called dispensational. And uh, even if you don't know that word or that method of interpreting the scriptures, some of you will have read popular books that actually use that method. And dispensational scholars will tell you that this passage is about a literal, physical Jerusalem during a period at the end of the age that they call the millennium. And it's all about nations of the world making some kind of annual pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. The dispensational scholars take an incredibly literal approach to the scriptures. So Jerusalem means Jerusalem. No exceptions, no arguments. The Old Testament promises for Israel are never to be taken over into the new covenant. They, they don't apply to the church. 
Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion or, or a debate over the merits or lack thereof regarding that hermeneutical approach. Sufficient to say that if you've been around Gateway for any length of period, you'll know that I don't hold to a dispensational approach to the Scriptures. Nor, by the way, if it's any comfort to you, do the majority of biblical scholars. That approach is a widely publicized approach, thanks largely to books like The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, the Left Behind series by Jenkins and LaHaye and so on. But actually, it has never been a widely held uh, view in, in biblical scholarship. And I've suggested to you that Jerusalem actually is a metaphor. It stands for the community of faith. It was a community that was chosen in the purposes of God to be a blessing to the nations. Remember when God called Abraham, he called him to be blessed and as a result of that blessing to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham and his descendants effectively were elected by God for the purpose of the nations, for the purpose of mission. The city lifted up and the nations streaming to it to learn of the God of Jacob is the Abrahamic promise in poetic, symbolic form. This is the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, actually being fleshed out, where it says, Keep them, that's the statutes of the law, and do them, for, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. So God gives these, this community his laws so that they would keep them so that people would observe. And who, when they hear of all these statutes, would say, surely this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? These people were to live in covenant relationship with God, to be a light to the Gentiles, a blessing to the nations. People were supposed to stream to them. And as you know, Israel, with very few exceptions, failed to live that out. They did briefly under David. If you, if you look at da the, the list of David's mighty men, you'll see men from every nation and tribe. There are, there are people who were historically... Israel's enemies as part of David's mighty men. They, they came to David. And we see it under Solomon at the height of his reign. Remember Queen of Sheba coming from long distance to see and hear his wisdom. She says in 2 Kings, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Remember, she said, I heard about you, but the half has not been told. But apart from those very, very brief exceptions, Israel largely failed in their calling. They were not a light to the nations. They were not a blessing to the nations. They, they, they nationalized God and made him their exclusive property. So Israel has largely failed in its calling. Nevertheless, the ideal remains. The picture remains of an, a city on a hill. Remember Jesus talking about it in Matthew chapter 5. Being a light to the world and the nations streaming to it. This community is on the cusp of judgment. Yet the promise still remains. From chapter 2 verse 6 Onwards, Isaiah flips back into judgment, and he carries on talking about the impending judgment. This Jerusalem, pitiful, corrupt, woeful, how can they ever fulfill their calling and destiny? 
You get to chapter 4, and suddenly he flips back into this hope mode again. As I say, it's kind of almost disconcerting. And in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, he says this. In that day, bifocals, okay, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Actual, ideal, hopeless, hopeful. This is, this is, the, this, this, this is the prologue of Isaiah. Now, in chapter 6, by the way, we will see how this spirit of burning and judgment touches and separates one individual, Isaiah himself and perhaps creates both a hope and a pattern for the nation. You remember him. I'm unclean, and I'm, I live among the people of unclean lips, and, and the Lord comes with a coal from the altar, and Isaiah is set aside. Here, the spirit of burning and judgment that the Lord will send to this community perhaps is the note of hope. Anyway, with the small note of hope, he then flips back into the actual. And chapter 5 talks again to Jerusalem as it is. And I want to pick up this morning on chapter 5 briefly, okay? It begins with a passage that we call the Song of the Vineyard. Let me read it to you. Verse 1 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall come up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is a song or a parable. And there seems to be three people involved in it. A singer who starts it, some say perhaps the best man of of the groom. And he starts to sing about his friend, but suddenly the groom, his friend, takes over. The, The owner or bridegroom starts singing directly over his vineyard. And then thirdly, the people represented by the vineyard, which is this community of faith, Israel. In a manner very, very similar to the parable that Nathan told David, Isaiah's listeners are skillfully drawn into a story that makes them render a judgment against themselves before they realize what's even happening. 
He sings about this vineyard. He says, what more could I have done? And they're saying, there's nothing more you could have done. You did everything that needed to be done. And then the trap is sprung. And as Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Isaiah says to this community of people listening to them, you are the vineyard. This is a song about you. And they stand self-judged. God literally left no stone unturned in setting this vineyard and this nation up to be fruitful. After all his work, he looked for and had every right to expect fruit from his efforts, but he was bitterly disappointed. And the Hebrew says, instead of good grapes, it brought forth stink fruit. Okay? Not wild grapes, but stink fruit. Gives a whole new meaning to the colloquial use of the term when something goes wrong and we go, oh, stink. It's as if God says, oh, stink. After all that work, I should have got grapes. And what I get is this, stink. Verse 7 actually has a play on words in the, in the Hebrew that the English translation misses completely. The Hebrew words for judgment and bloodshed sound very much alike, as do the words righteousness and outcry. He says, I look for mishpat, which is judgment. I got mishpah, bloodshed. I look for sedeka, righteousness. I got seeka, a scream. One scholar trying to catch that play of words translated it. He looked for right, but got riot. He looked for decency, but got despair. And in the rest of this chapter, Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah starts to talk about the stink fruit. Let me tell you what it looks like, he says. And in the passage, as you read through it, there are six woes and there are four therefores. And it's an ominous passage. As I read through this description that Isaiah has of this actual community, and the judgment that's about to fall on it, it's an incredibly frightening prospect to look up at this point through the bifocals and look down through history. As, as you do, you'll see how profoundly relevant and disturbing this material is for our day and our time. I'm, I'm deeply challenged by the question that if God's principles of judgment are consistent, and I believe they are, how long can it be before Western civilization, formerly known as Christendom, faces the same prospect as these people faced? And with a bifocal perspective, I want to look at the charges that Isaiah brings against these people and think about our day, our time, and then ultimately our community. First of all, he charges them with inequitable economic practices. He says to them, woe to those of you who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. These verses outline rampant greed and consumerism and it's shown in the form of unbridled property acquisition. How incredibly relevant. People buying properties, confiscating the houses and the fields of the vulnerable. People getting bigger and bigger houses and larger and larger lifestyle blocks. You say to me, Don, are you trying to say that it's wrong to own property or to get a bigger house? No, I'm not saying that at all. Not necessarily. 
This is a picture of unrestrained greed that is careless about destroying the neighborly fabric of community. Other people are paying the price for this expansion. This is about wealthy people who acquire more and more, irrespective of the damage that it does to others, and then, having acquired it all, turn to pleasure and indulgence. They are gathering and squandering. You say, well, it's not illegal. No, it might not be. It may be perfectly legal, but that doesn't make it morally defensible. Jeremiah tells us in no uncertain terms that wealth without justice confers no tenure. Listen to this. Like a bird that fills her nest with young, she has not hatched and which will soon desert her and fly away. So is the man who gets wealth by unjust means. Sooner or later, he will lose his riches and at the end of his life become a poor old fool. You know, the irony of this passage is that the land hungry end up just plain hungry, despite all their land. The Bible is not against wealth per se. It is against wealth that is unjustly acquired or poorly stewarded without any sense of responsibility toward God and toward others. I'm interested that Isaiah starts with that. I I suspect that if we had modern evangelical people compiling a list of the sins of our community, sexual sins would probably be at the top. I'm not even sure that the use or misuse of finances would appear on the list. We so breathe the air of Western materialism that most of us don't give it a second thought. It's just our world. It's our reality. And we are quick to point the finger at a same-sex couple, but not so quick to point the finger toward or challenge the successful businessman who puts his money into morally dubious endeavors or perhaps puts his money out with exorbitant rates of interest, you know, ironically possibly putting enormous and potentially destructive strain on a young couple who sits three seats away from him or her in the present church service that they share. We don't think about those things. Isaiah does. And I think Isaiah does because God does. He cares about the way we use our wealth. So, well, Don, I'm not particularly wealthy. Well, relatively speaking, I'm sorry, but you are. If we can turn on our tap and get hot water out of it, which most of us or all of us can do every morning of the day, then we are in the top 10% of the world in terms of facility resource wealth. That's just the reality. How we use it becomes incredibly important in God's eyes. Secondly, okay, make you feel happy if you're an evangelical. The culture is given over to intoxication, self-stupefication, and debauchery. That is the present culture as Isaiah is facing it. He says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, My people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. The picture in the Hebrew is really interesting. This is a people inflamed by excessive alcohol. And and, and it's graphic in the Hebrew. the, The word inflamed means this is a people set on the hunt. They are on the chase. They've had too many drinks and they are now on the hunt. 
We, we all know that alcohol functions as a disinhibitor. And people do things under the influence of alcohol that they would never contemplate when they were sober. But this is a picture of our society. A people who have given themselves to wine, given themselves to alcohol, and who are now on the hunt. Listen, friends, this is Hamilton every Saturday night, every Friday night, pretty much most nights of the week. This is people getting smashed and then just looking for the meat market. I'm trying to think of the book, Ecclesiastes. You know, nothing new under the sun. This, this is our community. And Isaiah said, and it's one of the reasons that judgment is coming. Note that this sensual indulgence, this self-stupefication, results in a loss of spiritual perception. As a result of this, they don't regard the works of the Lord. They do not see the work of his hands, and they go into captivity for a lack of of knowledge. These are, as one scholar suggests, theologically narcoticized people. So, economic issues, debauchery, self-stupefication. Then he says, and these people are proud and defiant and arrogant. Verse 15 speaks of their haughty eyes. Verse 18 to 19 says, Woe to you who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood and who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may see it. This is mockery. They are mocking the divine. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Chris talked about uh, Obadiah, and he talked about the issue of pride, and I think he quoted C.S. Lewis in it, and he says, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Ours is a culture that is arrogant and proud. These people in Isaiah's day, and we like them, actually, have decided that God is superfluous. To their credit, at least they tip their hats toward God. They were, as we looked last week, churchgoers. In our culture, we have found him and declared him to be annoying in the extreme. Not just superfluous, but just straight out annoying. We are presently living in a rapidly evolving anti-Christian culture. Not simply a post-Christian culture, as some like to call it. In our culture, you know anything is acceptable except being Christian. And there is this daring, contemptuous, presumptuous defiance of God. The Living Bible says, come on then, hurry up and punish us, O Lord. They say, we want to see what you can do. If you've read The God Delusion or some of the books that have been put out, you'll just see this defiance, this Hatred and anger toward God. And our, our culture is, is, is feeding off, off some of this material. By the way, the Jewish Targum suggests that this picture has people who are progressively going into bondage. They start with cords of iniquity, but they end up with cart ropes of sin. Kind of reminds me of an old saying that says, the chains of habits are too small to be noticed until they are too strong to be broken. And when they are noticed, these people aren't sorrowful or repentant. They are defiant. They parade their sins publicly without any sense of shame. 
Jeremiah was speaking to this same culture, to this same group of people. And in Jeremiah 6, verse 15, he says, they do not know how to blush. You know, it's been noted that man is the only animal that can blush or needs to. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, talks about godly women. And it says these women, uh, they live with propriety. The, the idea in the Greek is literally they have downcast eyes. The, the King James translates it shamefacedness. It's speaking about the capacity to blush. These people, these godly women, have a capacity to blush. This culture has lost it. This is something that we've almost expunged from our culture. We blush at nothing. We have chosen to be authentic, to be proud. Fourthly, we have a complete loss of perspective on what is right or wrong. Verse 20 says, they say what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right, that black is white and white is black and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. I have never read a better description of Western culture than that. We have not got a clue. We live in a culture that is ethically and morally clueless. I read an author the other day and I read his comment and it just it made me laugh out loud. It is so politically incorrect and so obvious. To make this comment, by the way, this guy is going to be hung out to dry by a culture that has redefined almost everything that we thought was beyond the need of definition. And his comment was, the modern world has made itself ignorant about sex, in particular that there are two of them and they are profoundly different. Think about it. In our gender-fluid culture, there aren't two. There are as many as you want. And the feminists are saying, and they are no different from them. And on and on and on it goes. To hear this is just such common sense to perhaps an old fogey like me that, as I say, it made me just laugh out loud. I thought, of course, the emperor has no clothes Now listen, it's easy for us to sit here and point the finger at them out there. And the purpose of this message is not that. We do live in this culture. And as Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He wasn't saying them out there. He was saying, oh God, it is them out there, but it's me in here. I'm no different. I'm, I'm affected in the same way and by the same things. And the purpose of this message is not some prophetic soapbox slam the people out there. The purpose of this message is to say, what about me in here? What about us in here? You see, we might expect that the Babylonian culture will behave like Babylonians. It's not that surprising, really. Again, it's one of those common sense things. Unsaved people do what unsaved people do because they're unsaved. Duh. But Isaiah isn't talking to them. Isaiah is primarily talking to the community of faith. Hosea was prophesying in the northern kingdom at exactly the same time Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom. And he says of the northern kingdom, 
kingdom in Hosea chapter 12, verse 7. He, that is Israel, is a merchant. Now that word merchant in the Hebrew is the word Canaan. And that phrase is probably better translated, he is Canaan. And you think, so? What a tragedy this is. Israel was supposed to go into Canaan and make it Israel. Israel's gone into Canaan and become Canaan. That's the point. In my worst moments, in my darker moments, I wonder if the modern-day community of faith has done a whole lot better than the ancient one. When you've been in my position for a number of years, you've heard all the stories. And, and truly, virtually nothing surprises me. Everything that I would anticipate that happens in Babylon happens in the community of faith as well. And this is a challenge because this community of faith is facing impending judgment. God has whistled to a nation and he said, Assyria, come. And they're on their way. And he says, I will fix this with a spirit of judgment and burning. I will have my community of promise. And if it takes drastic measures and drastic means, then so be it. You know, I've said to you before, God is more interested in our character than he is in our comfort, and he will do whatever he needs to do to get whatever it is that he wants to get. And I find that frightening. Isaiah, having outlined why judgment was about to fall, then proceeds to explain what it will look like. And there are four terrible therefores in this passage. I'm nearly done, okay? If you're getting depressed and want to reach for your Prozac, just hold it for a minute. Verse 13, therefore I will send you into exile far away. People will go into captivity, he says. Again, looking through your bifocal, speaking of our time, I think we can say without too much of a challenge that for all of our so-called liberty and freedom, there has probably never been a generation that has found so many different and novel ways to be addicted and enslaved. We have gone into captivity. Verse 14, therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The Living Bible has hell is licking its chops in anticipation. And I'm not just talking about the ultimate place, the ultimate hell. We have given place to all sorts of hellishness happening in our lives, our homes, and our communities. Verse 24, therefore God will deal with them and burn them. They will disappear like straw on fire. Their roots will rot. Their flowers will wither. As a culture, and I'm talking wider now than just the community of faith, we, we are a cut flower society. We've rejected our Judeo-Christian roots, and we are now surprised to find that the flower of our culture is withering. Flowers don't flourish when either the roots are rotten or absent, and we're in that position as a culture, Western-wise. Verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this people, and he stretched out his hand against them. These people were calling on God to deal with their enemies. What they failed to realize was that their manner of living had made them the enemy, and God was answering their prayers. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? God, deal with our enemies. Deal with the enemy. And God says, you know who it is? You. Reminds me of that cartoon Pogo. I have met the enemy and he is us, he says. 
God faithfully answering their prayers. You know what? None of us like to think of God as being angry. We love to imagine and to hear that God is a loving God, and of course He is. But if you think that His love is sentimental and accommodating, no matter how we, His covenant partners, are living, then I think from a biblical perspective, you are sadly and profoundly mistaken. And this passage goes on to talk about God bringing his hand down and saying, even yet, my hand is still stretched out. That is not enough. And bringing it down again. You can read it in verse 25 and then again in chapter 9 and verse 12 and 10 and verse 4, God is saying, and even yet, and even yet. Now, this is not just some capricious God slapping things to totally destroy. Perhaps it is likened to the God who is pumbling the clay to make it malleable, and he does what he needs to do so that ultimately he can form what he wants to form. It's not just mindless, losing his temper and throwing things all around the room. It is God saying, I will have that which I have purpose, and I will deal with the actual so that ultimately I can get the ideal. The crucial thing for you and I is whether we will see that there are parts of the actual in us that need to be changed in the form of repentance so that we can be a people available to the ideal. That's the challenge of this book. I know some of you are thinking this morning, I came along to church a little depressed and I was really hoping for some exhortation and to be lifted up and sent out into the world, ready to face another day. Listen, if that's your mode of you know, need, then, then whatever you do, don't read Isaiah. <laughs> you know? There's a book on the market, I've seen it, Chicken Soup for the Christian Soul. Go to Amazon and order 10 copies. Okay? I, the Bible is not a book for you. Look, God will encourage you. He will exhort you. He'll do whatever he needs to do to get you to the place so that you can live in his purpose. But he's not messing around either. He's not some, you know, debilitated old Santa Claus up there dribbling out of both sides of his mouth at the same time to say, I just so love them. He does so love you. He so loves you that he's willing to be misunderstood by you so that he will get you to where you want to go. Listen, Isaiah is stern stuff. For all his education and royal upbringing, he's no silky-speaking diplomat. He's no government lackey speaking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. He can be brutal as well as unbelievably poetic. And the question he poses remains, how can this people become that people? How can the actual ever be transformed into the ideal? How can Jerusalem ever be the people of promise to whom nations will stream to come and learn the ways of God? Now, Isaiah chapter 4, we read the spirit of burning and judgment, and Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me, I'm, I have unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. Both those two passages speak of a spirit of burning and judgment. And I think the way that that's going to get to that is that we encounter this. A number of years ago um, in the church that we pastored, we went through a season of, I think, I'd need to read my, my diary, but I think it was about between six and eight weeks. 
And, and what suddenly happened was that people began to smell burning as we were gathering. Uh, it, was, it was happening more than when we were gathering. It was actually happening in, in our home. Karen would wake up at night and smell burning, and she'd shake me. Dun, 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 there's something burning. And I'd get up, go through the house, there's nothing. I'd come back, no, nah, it's all good. She said, I can smell burning. And it started to happen in our church. And people would come up and say, I can, I can smell smoke. I can smell burning. People would come into our house who knew nothing about what was going on and, and we'd be sitting there. I remember one woman sitting there and she said, Some, something is burning. And, and I'm thinking, I don't even want to explain this. You know, I said, no, no, it's all right, it's all right. Conversation went on. She jumped up. Something is burning, she said. Ran out into the kitchen, came back kind of red-faced and said, there's nothing. I said, no, no, I told you. During that time... All sorts of things broke loose in our community. There was adultery exposed. It would take me too long to tell you, but in that period of time, God actually stepped in and started to do some significant things in, in our lives. It culminated one night. One night I was preaching, and, and this lady um, put her hand up, waved to me, and, and I knew that she wasn't sort of an oddball, so I said, what's the matter, Barbara? And she said, look, I, I've got to leave. I can't stay here. My eyes are watering with the smoke. I've got to get up and go. But before I go, I want to know, is there anybody else who feels this or smells this? And I said, I don't know. I can't. Is there anybody else? And about, I don't know, 16 hands in a congregation of probably 30 or 40 people at the time put their hands up and said, I can. And just for that season, I felt like God gave me an insight into this passage of how he transforms a community when he comes in the midst of us as a spirit of fire and burning. And he is an incredibly kind, incredibly gracious God. He's all of the things that we love to hear about him. He's also a holy God, and he wants a holy people. And he will do what he needs to do to move us from the actual to the ideal. He will take us on that journey. By the way, and I finish with this, later in this book, we will see that burning and that judgment fall on one person in the place of all. There will be a servant, a mysterious servant, that we'll actually start looking at next week. Because by virtue of Easter, uh, Palm Sunday next week and then Easter, I'm going to skip a whole lot of chapters in Isaiah and go across and then we'll make our way back. So we're going to be all over the place. But we're going to find this mysterious servant upon whom this fire falls on one in the place of all so that this sinful, rebellious people can be changed, can be cleansed, and can become this people of promise. So, homework. Okay. I know some of you haven't done the first five chapters yet. You will be penalized for your late... Uh, if you want to, um, skip across and start picking up from about Isaiah 42. If you've got a pen, read Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53. Okay? Remember that? If you haven't got a pen, scribble it on your neighbor's back. 42... 50, sorry, 42, 49, 50, 53. They are these incredibly mysterious servant songs. And in 53, 
you'll find this mysterious servant facing the burning and the fire, one for the sake of all. Okay? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.